So we're going to continue our survey of the Bible tonight. You can turn with me to Ezra chapter 4. So we move our way through the uh, Old Testament right now. Now we began this this book last week with the understanding that this was a, a very important time in the history of the nation of Israel. It was uh, also an awesome presentation of the importance of God's word and, and how important that is to us and, and his prophetic word, his written word. And, and so we, we began to see that God is uh, truly faithful to his prophetic word, that, that the things that, that he gives a word to a prophet about, he is in fact going to bring that into fruition and it's going to take place. Uh, God will be right 100% of the time. He's not ever going to even miss once. So if, if there's a biblical promise for us, a prophetic promise, then we can, we can be assured that God is faithful to complete what, what he prophesied. And, and so because we understand that and we see how it happened with the nation of Israel, we can draw comfort and strength for our own lives by reading what has taken place in this historical narrative. And uh, so we looked at the first three chapters last time and, and saw three different components of the narrative. We saw first the release of the captives. Remember the the Israelites were, were taken captive, first the northern kingdom into Assyria, and then the, the southern kingdom was eventually taken into captivity by the Babylonians. And, and now 70 years later, as prophesied, they're uh, being freed from captivity and released. And uh, we also saw a return of a remnant, not the entire nation, but just a small remnant went back into Jerusalem and Judea and, and began to, um, you know, we read through the, that amazing list of names. Hopefully you went home and memorized all those names uh, and groups of people. Um, if you did, I tip my hat to you uh, much, much better than I could do. And then we saw the the rebuilding of the temple be begin uh, begin, and what a what an awesome work to to observe. And and so uh, we'll pick it up here in chapter four and and try to get through three chapters again tonight. In verse one, it says, "Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the descendants of the captivity were building the temple of the Lord God of Israel." They came to Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's houses and said to them, let us build with you for we seek your God as you do. And we have sacrificed to him since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. So who are these adversaries? Well, these adversaries that he's referring to here are what we know as the Samaritans. Now, the Samaritans are an interesting group of people. They, they came as a result of the Assyrians when they, when they took a, a nation captive or they dominated a nation in war in some way, um, they would actually send people to... Uh, 
uh, intermarry with the remnant of people left in that area. And so there would be this mix of Assyrian blood and the local people. And so um, what, what happened was is that they sent this group of Assyrians and they intermarried with the remnant that was left after the, the masses were taken into captivity. And, and so they, they had a belief in Jehovah, God, but they also began to take in the customs of the Assyrians and the, the surrounding areas. And, and so they had this multiplicity in their worship. And, and so there was a, a combination of following the law and the, the rituals that, that the Israelites would follow, but they also had the superstitions of the pagans that they would include into their forms of worship. And so um, it, was, it was kind of a mix of both. And, and so because of this, later on, there arose this great animosity between the Israelites and these Samaritans. And you, you remember it continued all the way into the New Testament. Uh, when, when the Jews and the Samaritans interacted in the New Testament, there was still this uh, disdain or animosity toward the Samaritans. And, and it um, it was all because in the in the mind of the Jew, they believed that the Samaritans were half breeds. They they didn't believe that they were fully Jews. They they just considered them half breeds. And um, now it's interesting because the the Samaritans and when they worship God, they believed that they were supposed to worship at Mount Gerizim and. Um, if you remember when Jesus met up with the, the Samaritan woman um, in John chapter 4, verse 19 and 20, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place that one ought to worship. And, and so she was declaring that the Samaritans believed that there was this Mountain Gerizim or Mount Gerizim that they were supposed to worship Jehovah, but the Jews had the belief that it was to be in Jerusalem. And so there was this separation in their view of where Jehovah was supposed to be worshiped. Now, you have to understand that animosity that was between these two groups, the Jews and the Samaritans, in order to understand the significance of uh, the parable that Jesus gave of the Good Samaritan. You remember that parable where um, the, the man was injured and, and uh, the Samaritan was injured and, and only one person would lend assistance and gave money for his care and left it with the innkeeper and uh, I mean, this was just so out of the mind of a Jew. They would never even consider interacting with a Samaritan. It, it was because of this beginning place here back uh, uh, with the Assyrians. And, and, and so um, to, to understand that parable and understand what Jesus was trying to communicate. I mean, this is the same Jesus that in Luke 6, 
27, 28 said, but I say to you uh, who hear, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who spitefully use you. And so, you know, Jesus was, was telling the people of that day and telling us that we have to get beyond those natural kind of um, barriers that we have between people groups and such that there, there can't be this, this animosity that we're to even love those who would despitefully use us. And, and so, uh, so they, the noise from the dedication ceremony, you remember back at the, the end of chapter three, there was this great noise. The older people were weeping because of, you know, seeing the, the temple and the shape that it was in and, you know, knowing what, what it was supposed to look like. And the young people were rejoicing because they were going to rebuild. And, and so there was this commotion of weeping and, and joy. And, and it was so loud that these adversaries, these Samaritans heard what was going on. And, and so they, they come and they say, let us build with you for we seek your God as you do. They wanted to become partners in this work of restoring the temple. But this is the problem. True worship can't happen if you're unequally yoked with unbelievers or people who, who aren't following Jehovah. And, and so um, when, when they sacrificed, in fact, they even say here that they sacrificed since the day of Esar Haddon, the king of Assyria, uh, meaning that they had sacrificed without a temple. They were, they were going against the law of Moses and what the instructions were um, just kind of did their own thing and made up their own rules. And, and so it would have been wrong for the Israelites to link arms with these Assyrian or these uh, Samaritans and allow them to come into this work. It would have polluted the, the worship in this new temple. And he goes on in verse three and it says, but Zerubbabel who now Zerubbabel would have been the, the governor of Judah but Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest of the heads of the father's houses of Israel said to them, you may do nothing with us to build a house for our God, but we alone will build the Lord God of uh, the Lord God of Israel to the Lord God of Israel as King Cyrus, King of Persia has commanded us. So now you read that and you think, wow, that just seems pretty harsh. It seems like Zerubbabel is just being kind of cold hearted towards these people. But, but it was actually the correct response. This, this is the response that, that he should have had. They, they were not to be a part of this kind of ecumenical process and, uh, of their day. And uh, I, I think more Christians need to take this same kind of stand today. Um, you know, there is a ecumenical force brewing in our age that's very strong. And uh, if you don't know what that big fancy word is, ecumenical is just kind of like the interfaith movement. Can't we all just get along? I mean, we all worship God in some way. And, and you know, can't we just kind of 
pool our efforts and have these wonderful link in our arms kind of services together. That's the ecumenical movement. The problem is, this, this is what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14 and 15. He says, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? What communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And and so, um, you know, we, we attribute that to, you know, dating relationships, marriage relationships, but it really applies to our entire Christian life and and especially in our worship of God that that a, a true believer has nothing in common with an unbeliever when it comes to worship and and so this this whole idea of interfaith and you know can't can a, a Muslim and a Christian have Chrislam and worship together I mean it's all worship to one God no it's not it's not worship at all if it's going through the mindset of somebody who's Islamic. They're, they're not worshiping Jehovah and, and they're not coming through Christ who is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by him. And, and so we have nothing in common spiritually with somebody who's outside the Christian faith. And, and so even though it sounds like a good idea and can't we just all get along? I mean, yeah, we can get along, but we can't worship together because they're not worshiping the true God. And, and so um, Zerubbabel draws that proverbial line in the sand and he says, you know what? We appreciate your offer, but you can't, you can't help us rebuild the temple. We're not going to accept the collusion that you want to have with us as Samaritans. And then he goes on in verse four, and it says, "The, the people of the land tried to discourage the people of Judah. They troubled them in building and they hired counselors against them to frustrate their purpose. All the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And, and so now we see their true colors come out. I mean, they, they were presenting it like they wanted to come and partner with them and help them build. But, but now, once, once Zerubbabel draws the line and says, no, thank you, we're going we're gonna to keep this pure with the, with the Israelites. Um, as Israel rejected their offer of help, now they're set on destroying the work. Now, now their true colors come out and they, they have a, a desire to tear down or stop this, this rebuilding effort that's going to take place. Uh, in, in fact, I want to read verse four to you in the NIV because I think it captures it a little better in the New International Version. It says, then the peoples around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and to make them afraid to go on building. And, and so the, there was this sense that the, the enemy wanted to keep them in fear and, and to discourage them in their desire to honor God by rebuilding this place that they could worship the true and living God. 
And, and so the enemy didn't want them to succeed at re- restoring this place of true worship. And so with discouragement, with fear tactics, they came against Israel. You know, if you, if you think about that, that is the same tactic that our enemy uses against us today. It's a, it's a satanic plan. And, and he, he uh, you know, we, we discussed this Sunday morning. Uh, if, if you make a determination in your heart that you're going to be all out for the Lord, you're going to, you know, like we sing in the song, all for Jesus. My life is going to be for him, and, and I'm going to serve him with everything in me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find out what he wants me to do with my life in service and serve within the body of Christ. And you, you make that determination, and you incur this warfare that comes against you. There's an enemy that wants to destroy you, to discourage you, to put fear in you, to make it seem like there's no way you're going to be able to do this. Other people can do it, but you can't be all in for Jesus. And, and that's his tactic. It's never changed. It, it works, and that's why he keeps doing it. And, and so Christians are, are walking around discouraged. They're walking around in fear of, of failure and uh, maybe not living up to other people's expectations. And so they sit on the sidelines and they don't serve. And they don't get involved in, in what the Lord would want them to get involved in. And, and the reality is, is he will try to discourage you in any way that he can. He will put fear in you in any way possible to keep you from being effective in the kingdom of God. And, and he'll do this to keep you from making that commitment solid to be all in for Jesus. Well, he gives the, the time frame here for their trouble as being the, the rule of Cyrus to uh, Darius. And he, he's actually going to um, go beyond Darius in these next verses and actually show us a couple of other kings. But then he'll come back to Darius and, and we'll see how it comes together. In verse 6, he says, In the, the reign of Asuherus, uh, or Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. And so um, when you get to Asuherus, he, he's actually the, the one who reigned after Darius. Um, at this time, at the beginning of his reign, they begin this letter-writing campaign against the, the Jews uh, who were in this work of rebuilding. And, and Satan is the one behind the attack. He's the accuser of the brethren, just like he is with you and I. Uh, that's his true colors. And then it continues to the, the king that would follow him in the days of Artaxerxes. Also, Bishlam, Mithridath, uh, Te- Tabal, and the rest of the companions wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia, and the letter was written in Aramaic script and translated into the Aramaic language. And so um, it was probably dictated to a Persian scribe, but it was 
written or translated into Aramaic and, and written into letter form in that language. Rahum, the commander of Shimshai, the scribe, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to King Artaxerxes in this fashion. And so it's, it's coming from these guys, and now he's going to list the people uh, that he's representing. From Rahum, the commander, Shimshai, the scribe, and the rest of their companions, representatives of uh, Dinaites and all these other people. And then in verse 10, it says, the rest of the nations whom the great noble on Snapper, uh, O Snapper, took captive and settled in the cities of Samaria and uh, the remainder beyond the river and so forth. Now, this is a copy of the letter that they sent to King Artaxerxes. From your servants, the men of the region beyond the river and so forth, let it be known to the king that the Jews who come, uh, came up from you have come to us at Jerusalem and are building the rebellious and evil city and are finishing its walls and repairing the foundations. Let it now be known to the king that if uh, this city is built and the walls completed, that they will not pay tax, tribute, or custom and the king's treasury will be dismissed. Now, that's actually a lie. Uh, it's a false accusation. They, they were pointing out maybe some prior sins of Jerusalem or activities of, of the Jews, but these, these are Jews who are now returning from exile. These are uh, Jews who had already kind of went through the discipline, so their motives were probably going to be a little better at this point because they knew they could end up back in exile if they weren't careful. So they they were probably going to do what was necessary. But these guys feel if they can appeal to the king's pocketbook by saying they won't give you money, maybe they'll get the king's attention. Now, because we, verse 14, now because we receive support from the palace, it was not proper for us to see the king's dishonor Therefore, we have sent and informed the king. <laughs> so in other words, because you take care of us, king, and we're, we're on your payroll, uh, we, we need to bring this information. They're kind of buttering up the king. That search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers, and you will find in the book of the records and know that this city is a rebellious city, harmful to kings and provinces, and they have incited sedition within the city in former times for which cause this city was destroyed. We inform the king that if this city is rebuilt its walls and its walls are completed, the result will be that you have no dominion beyond the river. And so they're, they're talking about some history of the, the Jews that, that probably is accurate, but they're leaving out the fact that Cyrus understood there was a prophecy that was given for them to come back and rebuild. There was a reason that they were rebuilding. This, this was according to the word of the Lord that they, they were rebuilding. We looked at that prophetic word last time in, in, in the previous chapters. And, and so um, when, when I was reading this letter that they wrote, I, I was looking at how cleverly worded they, they did this. The, the words were 
precise, I believe, to discredit or a mix of truth and lies to try to discredit these who are rebuilding. And, and so, yeah, maybe a case could have been made for the sinful past of the people, but, but it didn't apply to these people who were now coming back from exile. Um, the, these were coming with a different heart and a different purpose in the rebuilding. They, they didn't have rebellion in their heart at this point. It was, a, it was an idea of revival. That's what they were seeking. They wanted to revive the, the temple and, and restore the temple so they could revive that spirit of true worship to Jehovah. And folks, again, this, this is a tactic that we deal with with the enemy even today to remind us of our sinful past. You know, when we want to, when we want to step out and we want to do something honorable for the Lord and we want to commit our ways to the Lord, we, we, we have that voice in the back of our head reminding us of all of our past failures, all of our past mistakes, the sin that we've committed, the horrible way we lived prior to being a Christian. There's no way God can use you uh, because you've done all of these things. You see, it's, it's a tactic that he uses because it's a tactic that works, and it works very well. If he can get us to look at our, our own insecurities, our own failures and, and mistakes, he can keep us from what God has intended for us. I mean, you, you remember the, the children of Israel when they... The first time, as, as they came out of Egypt and they came to the, the edge of what was the promised land. Why do we call it the promised land? Well, because God promised it to them. It was a land flowing with milk and honey. They were going to go in and, and take cities that they didn't have to build. They were going to have wells that they didn't have to dig. And, and God had promised this to them. And so they, they arrive at the edge of the promised land and they say, well, we better send some spies in to spy out the land. And they go in and 12 spies go in and they come back with a report. Well, 10 of the spies said, whoa, <laughs> I don't think we can do this, guys. Uh, and, and in fact, we're, we're like grasshoppers in, in their sight and in our sight. And, and so in their own opinion of themselves and their own estimation of their own selves, they believed that they could not do this. They looked at their failures. And, and so um, the reality is, is they could have because God had promised it to them. God had promised that they could go in and take this land. And, and yet the enemy was successful in 10 of them bringing back this false report. And it stopped them from being all that God intended them to be. Now, two of them believed God. They were the two that got to go into the promised land 40 years later, Joshua and Caleb. But the rest of all of those people missed out on that promise because they believed the lie that they weren't able to go in and take this land. The reality is you are and I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. That's what God says about us. Now, the enemy may lie to you. He may tell you other things about yourself. But the reality is, is God says that I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. 
In the Lord, I am his righteousness. It's powerful. I'm a failure in my own strength, but in him, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And so, as they purposed to rebuild, the enemy was continually chipping away. And this, this went on for a long time. And, and um, this, this account, this letter was sent after the temple was already built because uh, we're going to see when they go back to King Darius, which is before these last two kings, uh, that they actually complete the the temple portion of it, and they still have the walls to rebuild. Um, So going on, verse 17. The king sent an answer to Rahum, the commander, and to Shimshai, the scribe, and the rest of your companions. See, he couldn't even say their names. uh, Who dwell in Samaria and to the remainder beyond the river. Peace and so forth, like whatever. Um, the letter which you sent has been clearly read before me and I gave the command and a search has been made and it was found that this city in former times has revolted against kings and rebellion and sedition have been fostered in it. There have been mighty kings over Jerusalem who have ruled over the region beyond the river and tax and tribute and custom were paid to them. Now give the command to make these men cease that this city may not be built until the command is given by me. And take heed now that you do not fail to do this. Why should damage increase to the hurt of the kings? So the accusations pay off. The king stops the work on the city. Verse 23, now when a copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rahim, Shimshai, the scribe, and their companions, they went up in haste to Jerusalem against the Jews and by force of arms made them cease. So they, they forcefully stopped the, the work of the, the rebuilding. And thus the, the work... Uh, of the house of God in Jerusalem ceased and it was discontinued until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Uh, the work ceased. And, and so it's interesting to me that the, the enemy could only delay the work. He, he couldn't stop it completely. And, you know, if you think about that, that's what happens when the lies and the distortions are are believed. Uh, It's a delay. I mean, if you think about that that, uh, analogy of the the children of Israel, they were delayed. They eventually went into the promised land, but but they were delayed 40 years because they believed the lies. And and so, um, you know, false accusations come against a ministry even today, and it it can delay what God wants to do, but... Yeah, I can remember a few years back, a friend of mine, pastors of church, was having accusations made about him. He had a, a person in his church who was disgruntled and angry and, and, and so angry that this person went to the press and started telling lies about him. And, and you know, so the, the local paper in a small town is like burning this guy to the ground. And, 
and it had an effect on the life of the church for a time. But over a period of time, the Lord continued to raise up this this pastor who was not guilty of what was being said, and the ministry began to thrive again. So it, it delayed the work. The lies had an effect, but it didn't stop the work completely. And, and the Lord was faithful to bring that work to fruition. Next chapter, chapter 5. Then the prophet Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Edo, prophets, uh, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. And so Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, uh, and Jeshua, the son of Zodak, rose up and began to build the house of God, in, which is in Jerusalem. The prophets of God were with them, helping them. You, now, you remembered to do your homework, I hope, from last week um, to read the prophets Haggai and Zechariah. And I think I actually misspoke last week and told you to read Hosea, but hopefully you figured out that my brain doesn't always work correctly. Uh, I, I despise my brain sometimes, but but I knew what I was saying. I'm, yeah, but anyways, it was Haggai. Um, but these two prophets were were called upon by God to encourage the people to resume the building. They they were they were the the prophets that that came and spoke on behalf of the Lord and spoke encouragement for these. Uh, people to start rebuilding. Now, they, they knew, of course, that there was this decree from Cyrus originally that, that encouraged them to rebuild and, and uh, granted them permission to rebuild. And they, they knew it was God's will and God's time to rebuild the city. And so these, these two prophets together, Haggai and Zechariah, prophesied speaking the heart and the counsel to the heart and the conscience of these Israelites. And, and so both of them encouraged the people to get building and, and to get this program started again. In verse 3, at the same time, Tatanai, the governor of the region beyond the river, and Shethar Boznai and their companions... I always love it when they say they're companions because then they don't list 20 other names. Uh, came to them and spoke thus to them, who has commanded you to build this temple and finish this wall? Then accordingly, we told them the names of the men who were constructing this building. But the eye of their God was upon the elders of the Jews so that they could not make them cease till a report could go to Darius. Then a written answer was returned concerning this matter. So uh, Tetanai was the man appointed by the king of Persia to govern this province and to oversee, which which included this area. He uh, and his friends wanted to know why... Why are you rebuilding again? Who, who's telling you it's okay to start this building project and resume? Well, uh, it's interesting because they actually told him the names of the people who were involved in the project. Why did they do that? 
Well, I, I think it was to demonstrate that there wasn't a rebellion going on. They were real open in, in sharing who the people were, and, and, and there wasn't like a, a rebellion against the, the king or the authority of, of Darius. And, and this, this statement, God's eye was upon them, was a, was a statement confirming the words of the prophet to be true, or, or both of these prophets to be true. And, and therefore, the, the work couldn't be stopped at this time. God was with them. He was, he was in favor of what they were doing. So another letter goes out in verse 6. This is a copy of the letter Tetanai sent. The governor of the region beyond the river and Shethar Boznai and his companions, the Persians, who were in the region beyond the river to Darius the king. They sent a letter to him in which was written thus, Darius the king, all peace. Let it be known to the king that we went into the province of Judea and the temple of the great God which is being built with heavy stones and timber is being laid in the walls and the work goes on diligently and prospers in their hands. Now I want to stop there for just a minute because there's an interesting term here. He, he says they're using heavy stones. Now in the Hebrew, the original language that this was written, that, that word is a rolling stone. It's it's not just a heavy stone, but it's a rolling stone. And, and if you ever get a chance to go to Israel and you can go into the, the rabbi's tunnel and you can get under and you can see the, the stones that were used for this um, wall and, and they believe the, um, the wailing wall is, is where one of the, the walls of the temple was. And, and so when you... When you go down in there, you see the size, the massive stones, and you wonder how in the world could they get that from where it was and put it in place? I mean, some of those stones, you can stand there, I think they're like five feet tall, eight feet deep, and 40 feet long. Hundreds of tons of rock. And they didn't have cranes to lift them and move them. So how did they get them? Well, they rolled them. They, they believe now that that they, they, when they quarried the rocks, they quarried them in a way that they would roll and they would roll them to where they were going and then they would, they would um, fashion them to have a flat side and they would flip the flat side onto another flat side. And, and so, um, you know, when he says rolling stones here, he wasn't talking about Mick Jagger. He's talking about rolling these big stones down and, and they were... They were moving these massive stones back into place. And it must have been an incredible thing to see, to see him be able to maneuver these, these huge stones. And in verse 9, it says, Then we asked those elders and spoke thus to them, Who commanded you to build this temple and finish these walls? We also asked them their names to inform you that we might write the names of the men who were chief among them. And thus they returned to us, or returned us an answer saying, we are the servants of the God of heaven and earth. And we are rebuilding the temple that was built many years ago, which the great king of Israel built and completed. 
But because our fathers provoked the God of heaven to wrath, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed this temple and carried the people away to Babylon. However, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon. Now, why does it say Babylon and not Persia? Well, remember, Cyrus took over Babylon. I mean, he overtook Babylon, and so it's an accurate term. He was still king over Babylon as the king of Persia, so it's not a misprint. King Cyrus issued a decree to build his this house of God. Also, gold and silver articles of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple that was in Jerusalem and carried into the temple of Babylon. Those King Cyrus took from the temple of Babylon, and they were given to one named Shishbazar, whom he had made governor. And he said to him, take these articles, go carry them to the temple site, that is in Jerusalem, and let the house of God be rebuilt on its former site. Then the same Sheshbazar came and laid the foundation of the house of God, which is in Jerusalem, but from that time, even until now, it has been under construction and is not finished. Now, therefore, if it seems good to the king, let a search be made in the king's treasure house, which is there in Babylon, whether it is so that a decree was issued by King Cyrus to build this house of God at Jerusalem and let the king send us his pleasure concerning the matter. So who's this guy, Sheshbazar? Well, it's probably just another name for Zerubbabel. He's, Zerubbabel was the governor. He was the one left in charge. And, and so why would he refer to him at this name? Well, you remember the, the Hebrew names were often changed by these foreign leaders. Uh, Daniel, remember Daniel was Belteshazzar. Uh, in Daniel 1.7, it says, to them, the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar. Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. And so um, it, it wasn't uncommon for the Hebrew name to get changed to another name. And so many think that Sheshbazar is probably just Zerubbabel. And, and so this letter sent to Darius and, and maybe written with the idea that he's, he's not going to find this and he's going to send, you know, word to us to stop this work again. So let's move to the next chapter. Then King Darius issued a decree and a search was made of the archives where the treasures were stored in Babylon. And at Acmethia in the, the palace, this is in the province of Media, a scroll was found and on it a record was written this. So uh, Tatani had requested that, that Babylon's uh, archives be searched for this doc document. But it wasn't found in Babylon. Instead, it was found in Akmetha. If you have a newer translation like the NIV, it actually uh, names the city Ekbatana, and it's, it's the same. Both of them are the same city. Uh, it's just two names for the same city. Both uh, are the, the capital of media at that time. The, the scroll was found in, in Akmetha, and uh, it... It's because if you if you read history about 
um, Cyrus, he actually, in the summer months, two months every summer, went into this city uh, to spend the summer months. And, and so he would stay there every year. And so when they didn't find it in Babylon, they went over to where he would have stayed in the summer months. And, and the fact that they found it there is uh, an indication that there must have been some, some diligence in their search. They didn't just look at Babylon and then, then move on. They, they actually diligently looked. And, and that's, to me, evidence that God was still involved in this, that he was prompting the hearts of kings and, and moving uh, men into place that would be uh, able to accomplish his will. And this is what the scroll said in verse 3. In the first year of King Cyrus... King Cyrus issued a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem. Let the house be rebuilt in the place where they offered sacrifices and let the foundation of it be firmly laid, its height 60 cubits and its width 60 cubits, and three rows of heavy rolling stones and one row of new timber. Let the expense be paid from the king's treasury. Also, let the gold and silver articles of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took from the temple, which is in Jerusalem, uh, and brought to Babylon, be restored and taken back to the temple, which is in Jerusalem, each to its place, and deposit them in the house of God. And, and, and so he reads that original response, and now here's the king's response. Now, therefore... Tetanai, governor of the region beyond the river, and Shethar Bozani, and your companions, the Persians, who are beyond the river, keep yourselves far from there. Let the work of the house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews build this house of God on its site. And so, <laughs> you know, there's, there's an interesting rule or kind of a, a law amongst politicians don't ever ask a question unless you know what the answer is going to be because it can, it can bite you and it can burn you. Um, so, so you never are in a crowd and ask the crowd a question unless you know what the answer is going to be because it, it could really backfire on you. Well, Tetanias should have never asked the king to look for this decree from Cyrus because he found it. And, and now that the king has found the decree made by Cyrus, it's the law of the Medes and the Persians, and it can't be overthrown. It can't be overturned. You know, God has a way of turning things around when, when a person thinks they have somebody boxed in to a corner. You remember the story of, of Joseph and his brothers? His brothers thought that they had succeeded in, in ridding themselves of their, their brother Joseph and sold him into slavery, and he ends up being the number two man in, in all of Egypt uh, after, obviously, many different things the Lord did. But the famine comes, and his brothers end up before Joseph. You remember, after, after their dad comes, they start to panic. They think, wow. Joseph is probably going to kill us because <laughs> dad's not here to protect us. We sold him into slavery. He's going to turn this around. And Joseph knew what they were contemplating. And this is what he said. It's a powerful statement in Genesis chapter 50. 
verse 19 and 20, it says, Joseph said to them, do not be afraid, for I, am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. So even though you guys meant evil in, in what you were doing to me, God meant it for good so that many could be saved alive this day. And, and God has this unique way. I mean, we read that verse in Romans eight twenty eight, and we understand this, that, that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. He, he has this way of, of taking things that should never be or shouldn't happen that aren't good and using them for good. He doesn't say they're good. He never says all things are good that happen to you. There's some, there's some really lousy things that happen to us. But God has this way of taking a life that's yielded to him and he can take what was meant for evil and he can use it for good. He can use it to save others. And, and so when, when the enemy thinks he has you backed in a corner, he doesn't. God can still use your life in a powerful way. And so Darius gives this order for the work to continue, but, but he actually adds something here. In verse 8, he says, Moreover, I issue a decree as to what you shall do for the elders of the Jews for the building of the house of God. Let the cost be paid at the king's expense from the taxes on the region beyond the river. This is to be given immediately to these men so that they are not hindered. And whatever they need, young bulls, rams, lambs, burnt offerings for the burnt offerings of the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, oil, according to the requests of the priests who are in Jerusalem, let it be given to them day by day without fail that they may offer sacrifices of sweet aroma to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. Also, I issue a decree that whoever alters this edict, let him, let a timber be pulled from his house and erected and let him be hanged on it and let his house be made a refuse heap because of this. And may the God who causes his name to dwell there destroy any king or people who puts their hand to alter it or to destroy this house of God, which is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, issue this decree. Let it be done diligently. Interesting. A true politician. <laughs> he says, let this come from the king's treasury paid by your taxes. <laughs> we're we're going we're gonna to let your taxes pay for this. And, and so give them what they need to build. Folks, you think about this. God owns the, the cattle on a thousand hills. He can provide for whatever he wants to see be done. Any work that he wants to see take place, he can provide. He can move kings to do it, as he does with Darius. He, he moves on this king to fund this entire project. He knows how to provide for his people. Maybe you're sitting here tonight and, and you need to hear that word. You need to pause for just a moment and know that God is faithful to provide 
for his children. He's faithful to meet the needs of his kids. He knows if, if we're seeking first the kingdom of God, he knows how to meet the very needs that we have. And finally, Darius was careful to make a decree strong. He attaches some punishments against those who would violate what he had said. In verse 13, then Tentani, the governor of the region, beyond the river, Shethar, Bozani, and their companions diligently did according to what King Darius had sent. And so the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edo, and they built and finished it according to the commandment of the God of Israel and according to the command of Cyrus Darius, Artaxerxes the king of Persia. Now the, the temple was finished on the third day of the month of uh, Adar and was in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. It's interesting to me as I, I look at this text that y- you look at the Jews, they were positionally correct. They were where they were supposed to be. They were just discouraged. I mean, they, they had these people coming against them. They were discouraged and, and they were told to stop the work. And the Lord sent prophets to encourage them to continue through the adversity and to see the hand of God move in their midst. You know, I look at Christians today who are positionally okay, but, but maybe going through it in some way. And folks, the Lord is faithful to send that voice of encouragement if you're willing to hear it. He'll do it through his word. I mean, if you're, you're reading his word, he, he speaks loudly through his word. He may send that, that brother or sister that, that, that can come along and give that encouraging word like he did with them. He sent these prophets to give them the words of encouragement, to bring them out of that place of depression and discouragement. God is faithful to show himself mighty on our behalf just like he did with these who needed the Lord to move in their midst. God showed up, first with a word from the prophets, then in power for their lives. And, and they were able to finish the project and to see the glory of the temple once again. What a, what a blessing. In verse 16, then the children of Israel, the priests and the Levites and the rest of the descendants of captivity celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. And they offered sacrifices at the dedication of this house of God, 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats according to the number of the tribes of Israel. They assigned the priests to their divisions, the Levites to their divisions over the service of God in Jerusalem as it is written in the book of Moses. So what what a party, what a great joy to know that the house of the Lord was functioning again. They were able to bring the sacrifices and atone for sin once again. And and notice it was for all Israel, 12 tribes. There's people who talk about the 10 lost tribes. This This was for all 12 tribes, no lost tribes, 12 represented here. Verse 19, and the descendants of the captivity kept the Passover on the 14th day of the first month, 
For the priests and the Levites had purified themselves. All of them were ritually cleaned and they slaughtered the Passover lambs for all the descendants of the captivity for their brethren, the priests and for themselves. Then the children of Israel who had returned from captivity ate together with all those who had separated themselves from the filth of the nations and of the land in order to seek the Lord God of Israel. And they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy, for the Lord had made them joyful and turned the heart of the king of Assyria toward them to strengthen their hand in the work of the house of uh, God, the God of Israel. And, And so they were careful to keep the Passover according to the command of Moses. Uh, followed precisely, remembering the redemption that the Lord had had brought to the Israelites. They they separated themselves from the filth of the nations. Wow, what a what a statement to end the study on tonight! That they separated themselves from the filth of the world around them. In doing so, they they turned the the heart of the king to the God of Israel. Now, folks, there's, there's an entire sermon with one minute left on that thought alone. <laughs> you, you can spend a whole night talking about separating yourself from the, the things of this world. And what a great impact that allows us to have on the people to draw their attention to the true and living God. I'm not talking about being stuck up. I'm I mean, with the joy of the Lord, with humility, with a love for other people, with grace, but uncompromising. What an impact we can have on our own family, our co-workers, uh, other associations that we might have. Lord, may that be our passion. May we, we live with that kind of passion and shine brightly to the world around us that Kings and commoners alike will see his glory in us. Amen. Let's pray.